Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. There's nothing quite like a good, perfectly aged Zinfandel. In this variety focus, we'll hone in on what makes this grape so special. Zinfandel. Where is it grown? Why is it so popular? Where did it come from? Why does it taste like that? What is the deal with those field blends? Zinfandel. It's a grape with quite a unique history. Long before DNA profiling, it traveled to many places, assumed many names, and today has a unique and varied diaspora throughout the globe. It's generally accepted that Zinfandel is from Croatia, though there is some pushback from certain geneticists that it may have an Italian genesis. Zinfandel goes by a few names in Croatia, but the most ancient reference is as Tribidrag, and these references date back to the early 1500s. The grape is also a staple in Puglia, where it is known as Primitivo. Primitivo has a unique second fruiting zone. When trained VSP style, the grapes will come forth in the usual fruiting zone, but also in a second fruiting zone farther up the vine. This is usually discarded, but can be used to retard the ripening of the primary fruiting zone. Only a few grape varieties have this unique characteristic of a second fruiting zone. Though Zinfandel and Primitivo are widely grown, I've only heard one producer from Fatalone talk about using this second fruiting zone to his advantage. He even makes a rosé wine just from this fruit, which is harvested about two weeks later from the first fruiting zone. So Primitivo is a staple in Puglia. But how did it get to California? And where does the name Zinfandel come from? This is still a mystery. The grape first pops up in U.S. history records in Long Island when a local grape grower was raising Zinfandel. He had planted vines from an educational vineyard in Vienna that cataloged every vine currently growing in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. For reasons unknown, Tribidrag assumed the name Zinfandel in the United States and it migrated west to California. In California, the grape was interplanted in vineyards with other varieties, creating field blends that help to hedge the effects of the vintage by regulating ripeness. Zinfandel in California helped to establish an identity for the region in the 19th century and can certainly be seen as a beverage that contributed to the founding of the West Coast of the United States. 
But getting back to the crux of the scrape, so many mysteries remain. Where does the name Zinfandel come from? How did it get from Croatia to Puglia? How did it get from Long Island to California? What prompted the popularity of the Zinfandel-based field blends that were so common in California in the 1800s? There is a lot that DNA can tell us, but there are several stories that are left only to our imaginations. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand morgan twain peterson on the show today of bedrock wine company hello sir how are you Good. How are you doing? Nice to see you. Very nice to see you as well. So your last name is Twain Peterson. It is. And you're the son of Joel Peterson. Yes. And somehow you added your own Twain thing in there. Yes, that would be my mother's doing. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. It was like <laughs> some sort of an agreement thing. Exactly. Um, hyphenated, hyphenated relationship. Hyphenated relationship. My mother has always been a very strong personality and strong personality in my life. And Twain was actually a name that... Uh, she gave herself in her first marriage when she was living on a commune in Kenwood, and uh, she and uh, her then-husband decided to throw off the shackles of the patriarchal naming tradition and create an entirely new name, which was Twain, which also means two. And, uh, oh, so I, name, didn't, I never got that part of it. Yeah, so it was her favorite author, but then also the Twain means two, and so it was the two of them. It was, you know— it was very, you know, they melted silver spoons and then, you know, had my little sister, my big sister, whose name is Caitlin Twain. And then the Twain stuck, which is better because her original maiden name was Seaman. So I think that that was oh, actually yeah. a... It's good if you're in the Navy. It is. And considering the fact that my middle name is Guy, it would have been a really, really wow. rough middle yeah. school, high school existence if she had kept with that name. So I think that there is ulterior motives to this taking of the second name as well. But, but it was really close to being Huckleberry. Like it could have been more If it were Huckleberry, Huckleberry, it would have been amazing. So it's funny. One of the, my vineyard guards actually calls me uh, Huckleberry, which is, which is great. So. How many times do you kick that guy's ass? <laughs> like, He's very big. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. He's a hippie, though. I think I could do it. So. Say it again. Say it again. <laughs> yep. So you, you grew up with your dad. I grew up with my dad. Um, He's the famous Ravenswood guy. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was a little kid, I mean, Ravenswood wasn't very big. I mean, my dad... Um, 
got there in a rather circuitous route. He he grew up in a, a family that really loved food and wine. My grandfather and grandmother were part of the Berkeley Wine and Food Society, um, which is where they hung out with folks like Alice Waters and Narcy David. And through that, they really got turned on to wine. My my grandfather actually used to, it was illegal for him to sell wine, but he actually wrote a pamphlet that he would write all of his tasting notes in and sell that for like $25. But with that came a case of wine that he would give to people. And he would literally sell these out of the back of his car at the Shell Refinery, which is where he was a grease chemist. Um, <clears throat> so, is there a statute of limitations on that stuff or should I cut that part out? Uh, that's a very good question. He's long since deceased. <laughs> well, yeah, so I think that's the harder statute. to prosecute when they don't show up for the trial. I think that's very true. So my dad, needless to say, grew up in this family that loved food and wine. Um, he was able to taste a lot. You know, my grandmother and grandfather had this tasting group and my dad would be able to sit in even going back to when he was 13 or 14 and he'd be allowed to taste. And um, my grandfather would very, in a very chemist type way, measure how much liquid went into his glass. And if it matched the amount in his spit cup, he was allowed to come back and taste again. Because um, bo- both your grandparents were chemists. Both my grandparents were chemists. They actually, my grandmother was the first woman to graduate Phi Beta Kappa in chemistry out of Berkeley. They met um, in Northridge, Tennessee, where they were isolating plutonium. So, you know, chemistry. And then my grandmother came back and in those days, there wasn't really much work. Um, she was there as a school teacher for a bit. And then after my father was born and my uh, uncle was born, she was, I think, going a little bit stir crazy. And she started to cook, which is a good outlet for her chemistry skills. And uh, A lot of soup, a lot of heavy broths with the stir. Exactly. A lot of, <clears> she, a lot of she, risottos. A lot of risottos. She made a lot of magic out of a really tiny kitchen. It's great. I still have some of her old crusade pans and everything, which is always you know fun as family collectibles. Those things um, last forever, huh? They last for a long time. Not even like chipped enamel on some of them. They're pretty amazing. And sort of the story goes that um, my grandmother was reading um, a cookbook by Elizabeth David, so classic old French writer, and she kept talking about how wine went with all the food. And so for Thanksgiving meal, she suggested a bottle of wine. She suggested a Rhone. And my grandmother in California in those days, wine was very, very limited. And my Grandmother went out of her way to find a bottle of wine. She found it at the city of Paris, which is now Neiman Marcus in San Francisco. Went all the way there with, you know, my father and my uncle in tow and uh, picked up a bottle of wine. And it ended up being a 1945 Chateau Forcha, Chateau Neuf de Pop. And my dad has this saying that if it was 44 or 46, we may never have been in the wine industry. Um, 45 is a good year. So... It's sort of the love of wine kind of came out from there. And um, needless to say, my dad caught the bug. And even though he went to college for microbiology up at Oregon State, when he came back and was working as a cancer immunologist at Mount Zion in San Francisco, he continued to write. He continued to taste. He actually had this goal of his where if he could go to enough industry tastings, he would not have to feed himself Throughout the week, so you'd actually go to take notes, but also to you know. Funny, for, I've had the same goal. <laughs> I think a lot of many have. Uh, yeah, and then in 1974, you know, after I think was a pretty hard time at Mount Zion for cancer immunology, he was doing a lot of one-on-one stuff. He had a number of patients that died of cancer, and then at the same time, um, the fledgling AIDS crisis um, outbreak in San Francisco was going on, and so Mount Zion was the first to look at that because people for a short while thought it was actually a form of cancer. They didn't realize what it was. And 
So at that point, I think he was looking for a bit of an escape. And on the weekends, he went up and started working with um, a winemaker named Joe Swan. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, And started working with him in 74, 75, 76. Um, What was Joe like back then? You know, Joe was definitely, I think, my dad's hero. He speaks incredibly fondly of him. He talks about how precise he was in the way that he made his wines, how, how he's always experimenting, how almost to the point where it kind of drove dad crazy. Like he made this incredible Zinfandel out of the vineyard right next to his house. And he was like, oh, that's great. Now let's plant it to something else. Because he really was trying to experiment and see. You know, I think the one story that dad has of working with Joe is that the only time he's ever saw Joe at the end of the day, not, you know, put every instrument back where it needed to be, make sure all the barrels were clean, everything like that, was when he actually got a call from Andre Chelichev. And Joe basically put down his stuff, grabbed my dad, threw him in the car, and they went to Napa and met up with Andre Chelichev, who apparently every summer, the owners of Beaulieu would go to France and they would leave the larder totally stocked with everything from foie gras to caviar to everything. And at that moment, Andre would always call Joe and then they would go over and they would just have a feast at Beaulieu. And so dad was able to go to those. There's actually this great photo of um, Joe and Andre. Andre's, I think, probably like five foot four, often have like two cigarettes going at once. Joe, very tall, lean guy looking at this sick vine out in Joe's vineyard. And there's my dad with his hair like down to his mid back with white bell bottoms with a red stripe going down it. And it is a, it's a classic. Dad, I think learned a lot from Joe. He, he told me that he got to make one picking call uh, with Joe, which was in 1974 on Pinot Noir. And, uh, that Pinot Noir ended up being 15.4% alcohol, so uh, which it was a hot year, but needless to say, I think it was a little above what Joe was looking for. Your dad always yeah. said that Pinot Noir was a tough grape to, to grow. Dad did not have a huge amount of respect for Pinot Noir in California, no. And it, I mean, he absolutely loved Burgundy, and I think he saw the, particularly in those days, I mean, there's a huge gap qualitatively between you know what you could taste out of Burgundy, particularly because Burgundy wasn't as expensive then and what you're getting out of California, even for the classics like Martin Ray and others at the time. So yeah, so dad started Ravenswood at Swan in 76. He made his first vintage there, two Zinfandels, uh, Vogensen and Paulson uh, Vineyard, one from Dry Creek Valley and the other from Russian River Valley. And you know, he always joked that uh, he couldn't afford Cabernet, which is probably partially the truth. But he also, even back then, I think, really saw the beauty of old line vineyards. And I think that that's something that he's always respected enormously. And that's certainly something that he's passed on to to me throughout the throughout the time. So, you know, he was working, he moved up to Sonoma full-time in 1978, I think in part because my mother was up there, um, or my future mother was up there. And, uh, ah, that does it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Alluring redheads. So, 78, uh, he started uh, living in Sonoma full-time, and then in 80, he moved into... Um, after making Ravenswood wines at a number of places with like the to- the crazy Greek Topolos family out in Russian River Valley and a few other at Martini and Prati and a few other places, he moved into this little, essentially a shack. It was huge to me when I was a kid and I go back now and it's minuscule tin shed right on the corner of Broadway and Sonoma. And so he's a little bit closer and yeah, he worked two jobs until 1999. And I mean, he legitimately, I think, had to work two jobs until the early 90s. I mean, he always jokes that it took 
Ravens had almost 18 years to get out of the red. And some of that was due to growth, but I think some of it was due to the way that the sales scheme was set up then. And also the fact that it was a struggling, you know, struggling winery. And he was trying to sell red Zinfandel right in the time period where white Zinfandel was booming. And so, I mean, he, in the eighties, he would joke that, uh, and even the early nineties that, you know, people would come up to him at tastings and accuse him of putting food coloring into the Zinfandel because it was supposed to be pink and they didn't even understand that it was actually a red, a red grape. So it was definitely a tough road to hoe in some ways. But yeah, I have really fond memories of growing up at Ravenswood. You know, all the fermentations were done in open top redwood tanks, which seemed normal to me at the time. I didn't realize how kind of out of you know, left field that was in many ways. Is that um, why the wines were red? Like if you'd had white wood tanks, would it have been white tin? Uh, <laughs> oh, no, that's not how it works. I don't think that's how it oh, works, okay. but it would have been a very strange white wine, I think, though. <laughs> <laughs> you can still taste the redwood tannin in some of those old Ravenswood wines. It's really that's interesting cool. what it's actually, done. That's a flavor I enjoy, actually. It is, and to me, I think there's something really interesting about using a wood that is so identified with California on California wines, right? It's sort of always seems odd that we'd be using oak all the way from France or even from Missouri in some cases on wines that are from California. So I kind of always respected and loved, you know, I've come to love and respect the fact that he did do them in open top redwood tanks. And there's some other wines out there. Um, like Maya Kamas had. Maya Kamas had them, LaSalle had them. And in fact, one of the wines that really defined California for me when I came back and was looking at what type of wines I want to make was actually a, bottle of 1934 Larkmead California Burgundy oh, from cool. Frank Salmina's cellar. And figure is 34, so right after Prohibition. And, you know, so I'm sure all the tanks were either new or they were really manky and old. Uh, this one's tastes like they're new. And this wine was um, Petit Sra, Alicante, Zinfandel. And it was the freshest, most alive old California wine that I've ever had. And I've had a lot of them. And to me, I was like, there's something pretty amazing and singular there. Not about just with those combination of varieties, but also the fact that you could still taste this almost like aggressive redwood character. I'm sure the wine was absolutely fierce in its youth, but it's it has aged absolutely beautifully. We still have a couple couple bottles of it left, which are... Because um, today you mostly work with blends and you yeah. do have some redwood uprights in the bedrock facility. We do. We do. We um, When I started uh, Bedrock in 2007... I went right back to Bellagio Tank Company, who was the last tank company that would make redwood tanks. They went out of business just, I think, the year after and had them build me a two-ton and a three-ton open-top redwood. And those ones are uh, are back in play for sure, which I think is a cool thing to do. The other thing my dad did with the 80s wine, with the Ravenswood wines from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even today, which has always impressed me. And again, one of those things where I think he was so forward-thinking in a way that you know, I didn't realize this because I was just a kid, was he was doing all native yeast fermentations in the 80s, which was just most people thought was insane. I mean, he had this story of doing Custom Crush at um, Hacienda Winery at the time. And he told the winemaker that he was going to do all native yeast fermentations. And the winemaker was like, okay, but literally put a skull and crossbones on the tank and made any pump, any hose that touched the wine be re-sanitized before it touched any of their other wines because she was convinced it was going to somehow infect the winery. Um, and I mean, obviously, native yeast fermentations have really began to get embraced, I think, in the late 90s in California. But the fact that he was doing them all the way back to the you know 70s and 80s, I think, was really quite cool. And he saw, you know, I think that just, you know, you get 
more voluminous aromatics. You get more complexity out of uh, making wines like that. And although I think he adds a little bit more sulfur to the wines now, I know early in the 80s and 90s, he was adding no sulfur at fermentation too. So, I mean, I mean, you think about how many incredibly hip wineries today and, you know, a lot of those wines that we all have so much love for and have high acclaim are made that way. It's interesting to think he was doing that in the 80s on, you know, kind of the the lowly Zinfandel at the time. And beyond that, you know, my dad just worked like mad. So, um, and I was always with him. So I have really, really fond memories of growing up in the industry and, you know, meeting the families that grew the grapes because dad never embraced an estate model. He always was buying fruit from other people. And so, I mean, there's people that I buy fruit from today, like the Teldesky family that, you know, dad met because Swan was working with their fruit in the 70s. Dad started working their fruit in the early 80s, and now I work with their fruit now. So, I mean, it's been 40 years of working with the same family and buying the same dry-farmed, head-trained Zinfandel off the Dry Creek bench, which is, um, you know, I think kind of special. There's not a lot of history in California wine, but when you can go four generations, that I think counts. So. And even up in like Monteroso, which you work with a parcel today, your yeah. dad used to work with a parcel. Oh, that's I, that's one of my favorite stories. It's uh, my my dad talked Mike Martini into selling some fruit from Monteroso for the first time in 1993, and so Mike brought him up there, and Dad chose this really sweet parcel of vines planted in 1886, dry farmed, mid slope. Monteroso is one of the most spectacular vineyards there is. It's a huge vineyard. Um, but there's a lot of old vine fruit up there and it was the, the block is planted at about a thousand feet on the Sonoma side of Mount Vitor on this bench of deep, deep red soils, thus, thus the name Monteroso. And my dad worked it with it from 1993 to 2002 and made some really lovely wines in 2001, two things happened. Ravenswood sold to Constellation and Martini sold to Gallo. So all of a sudden, you know, two little wineries went into like two, you know, big megapolis, like in competition with each other. And dad got his contract cut. Um, so fast forward to 2008, and I find about out about this amazing old semion up there from Zelma Long and Diane Kenworthy, who's my amazing vineyard manager now, who used to work at CME back in the 80s. And I start working with that was Selma Long's winery. That was Selma Long's winery at the time, one of the great early female wine, uh, winemakers in California. And uh, I'm up there, and I keep begging for Zinfandel fruit, and they tell me they don't have any. They don't tell. They tell me they don't have any. And then in 2010, they're like, "Fine, we've got an old vine block. You know, there's one. You can leave it. You can take it. It's up to you." And so they take me to the block, and I'm up there, and I call my dad, and I'm like, "Dad." Your block at Monterosso is like, as you drive in, it's just like that first block up on the left, right? Kind of on the mid slope. And he was like, yeah, it's the old block 32. I don't know what they call it anymore. And I was like, well, they just gave me your block back. So um, we sort of jokingly call it the Peterson block, not when the gallows are present. Um, (laughs) And uh, we've worked with that fruit since 2010. And it's really, really pretty amazing Zinfandel site. So, you know, and it's again, one of those things that goes back to, Obviously, that one was a little bit different because of the Gallo Constellation thing. But the one thing that I can say about my dad is that a lot of people have always commented that it must be kind of easy getting into the industry because, you know, I'm following in my fa- my father's footsteps in some ways. But Like the Earnhardt family. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, yeah, we race cars in this family. NASCAR yeah. racing <laughs> reference. I was not expecting that one. Well, yeah. I watched Days of Thunder. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and... You know, my response to them is, yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of 
people of my dad's generation that kind of were assholes and like really did some nasty things to growers and nasty things within, you know, the industry per se. And the one thing that my dad always did was treat his growers with incredible respect, try to pay them on time as best he could. It was hard sometimes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. Crazy <laughs> talk. <laughs> and, you know, pay them a fair price and treat them as human beings and realize that, you know, you need to have happy growers to have, you know, great, great wines. And uh, that's the reason why I think, you know, there's any number of vineyards that I've gone to where the door has opened because my dad, for better or for worse, has worked with most of the great old vineyards in Sonoma and Mendocino and even in Napa. And as a result, it's like, oh, you're Joel Peterson's kid. You can't be all bad. So, you know, it opens the door. I have to do the rest. But at the same time, like dad definitely, I think, has always treated everybody he's worked with with incredible respect and dignity. And that's a uh, that's definitely been a huge benefit to to me, you know, starting Bedrock. What was he like to you? What was your, your relationship? Oh, my dad is amazing. Um, he has always been my biggest supporter. I mean, much like he, like his father did with him, he always allowed me to taste wine. I was in the winery all the time. My, my mom was going to nursing school for a good chunk of, you know, my early years. And so I basically like slept at the winery when dad was working late. I would sleep in the bacteriology lab when dad was working at the lab late. I would try to do punch downs with them, but that was hard because I was little and I, you know, I idolized him in many ways and, you know, but he was, he was always willing to encourage whatever I wanted to do. And I mean, it goes to, you know, whether it came to starting Bedrock and finding the original financing for that, which was all my dad, or even back to 1986 when I wanted to make wine for the first time. And, you know, my dad, was totally okay with it. And he was like, pretty young at that. I was five at the time. So very young. And, uh, I said, I wanted to make wine. And I think dad had the idea that he could just give me a little bit of something he was bringing in, whether it's Zinfandel or Merlot, which are the two main reds he was working with at the time. And I told him that I wanted to make Pinot Noir. Um, and he asked me why. And cause I, and you know, I think I was a bit of a, a brat. And uh, I said, well, because I heard you say that you don't think any good Pinot Noir can be made in California. Um, to which he laughed. <laughs> and I actually was able to go to the San Giacomo family, who are my parents' landlords. And Angela San Giacomo, who is the patriarch of the family, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah, I think put up with me. I would always ride my bike over and just like sit in his office and like try to shoot the shit with him as like a four, five, six-year-old would. And he had the utmost patience with me, um, which looking back, I think was definitely something. And my parents had been to Italy the previous summer, I guess. And uh, I was really into currency and collecting coins and seeing all the different stuff. And so they gave me a bunch of lira. And I think they gave me something like six or 7,000 lira, which I thought was a ton of money at the time. I think it was like two or three bucks. And I went to Angelo and I was like, I want to buy fruit from you. And he's like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I want Pinot Noir. And he's like, all right. And I like gave him the lira and he kind of laughed. He gave me the lira back and then called my dad and was like, is he serious? And my dad's like, yeah, I think he is. And um, starting that year in 1986, a half a ton of Pinot Noir just showed up at Ravenswood. And it showed up from 1986 to 2001, ironically, when I turned 21. And uh, every year, dad and I would make Pinot Noir together. And uh, the first year, um, I remember him opening three bottles of Pinot Noir. One of them was Burgundy. Dad says it was Dujac. I don't remember. And then a couple of other examples. And he asked me which one I liked the most. And apparently I liked the Burgundy. And so the Dujac. 
the Dujac. And so apparently we did, you know, we did a hundred percent whole cluster. We put it down to one new French oak barrel and that wine was a beastly tannic wine for a long time, but it kind of opened up and, you know, we do that kind of every year. And so it became a, you know, a father son project that was always this point of sort of coming back. Cause obviously I went through early teenagehood and became a teenager and I'm sure I was surly and not wanting to talk much and, but it was always something that we could sort of connect over and the wines were really bad sometimes. And sometimes the wines were good. I remember one time in 96, I gave it 10 times as much sulfur as it should have oh, you, you permanently ruined the, the, the wine. Calculation. I, yeah, I missed a, I missed a decimal point. Yeah. I don't <laughs> so, think you're the only guy who's ever done that. That's yeah, definitely happened. Yeah. I think that wine might be good in like another 20 years. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that was cool. So that was a, you know, he always has encouraged me on on that front. And to this day, I mean, he's always, you know, he's always an advisor. I always joke that he's the uh, best consultant. He's the most underpaid winery consultant in California because anytime I've got a question or a concern or anything, he always has advice, whether I want it or not. But yes, he always has advice. But um, later you actually ended up selling those Pinot Noirs that you'd made. I did. So that sort of, that brings me to my time in uh, in Manhattan. So in 1999, I entered Vassar College up in Poughkeepsie. And the summer before that, in 99, I worked at Chelsea Wine Vault, which was uh, owned by Chris Cree at the time, who now has 56-degree wine out of Bernardsville. Um, it that was, was like the Ralph Coodle uh, era. It was, yeah, like Ralph Coodle, uh, Mark Haynes, Lyle Fass would show up from time to time. I mean, baby Lyle Fass. Um there's a few others. This guy, Mike, who was the psalm at Tribeca Grill for a while, but I think he's moved down back south. Heather Willens. There's a bunch of folks that just rolled through there. They're just opening up the underground storage at Chelsea. And so, like, a lot of people rolling in and out. But I was, like, 18. I didn't really get much of it. But what Chris did was really cool is he allowed me to basically try to sell all the wine, which we later called Vino Bambino Pinot Noir. They were in Shiners for, like, 14 years. And all the way back to that original 86. And so, you know, I was really green and obviously I think probably adolescently arrogant too. And, you know, I sent all these invites out to all the top sommeliers in the in the city and invited them to come taste these Pinot Noirs in the basement of Chelsea Wine Vault. And I couldn't really believe it, but a lot of them showed up and a lot of them bought the wine. So it was one of these sort of watershed moments for me as I came in and like John Slover, who was just opening up Blue Hill at the time, with 86 being on the opening list at Blue Hill. Paul Greco bought all the 97 for Gramercy Tavern. Ned Benedict bought all the 98 for Oriole. Lawrence Kretschmer, I think, bought the 96 for Mesa Grill. I forget the name of the opening psalm for Kraft, but he bought Matthew something. He's in Connecticut now. He bought the 95 for the opening list at Kraft, which was just starting at the time. And, you know, it was... Uh, it was big. I mean, I was really, really, really excited. And then Kraft also, I think, worked with some of the 99 at some point. So That's that was just, cool, it's like, pretty amazing. You're selling wine at 18. Yeah. And like, and also all this cool. stuff that, you know, I had no idea whether it was, you know, good or all that good. I mean, there's definitely lots of positive reinforcement from my dad, but I didn't know how much of it was like legit and how much right. of it was like, you're doing a good job, son, like that type of thing. So to like have folks respond so positively to the wines, that was really, really cool. So it was uh, it was fun. I mean, it also allowed me to, in celebration, we went to um, a meal at Gramercy Tavern, and that was like one of the 
greatest meals of my life because not only was Tom Colicchio cooking, Paul Greco was on the floor and I was there, you know, with my girlfriend at the time, my best friend, Jimmy, Gareth, my, and my parents. And uh, we were sitting there and Paul Greco comes out and he's like, if it's all right, we'd like to cook for you tonight. And I was like, okay. And so Tom Colicchio cooked a 12 course meal for us. And then the middle three courses he paired with three vintages of the Vino Bambino Pinot Noir. And I remember it was like this baby lobster tail dish, which is absolutely incredible. And this other one that had truffles. And I mean, but it's just one of these moments where not only do you see like the food and wine pairing and being like, it was some of the most magnificent food I'd ever eaten, but then to sort of have Vino Bambino be placed as a centerpiece, very much thanks to Paul, that was a huge moment. I mean, I think that was one of the times where I was like, wow, not only am I nostalgic and happy as remembering this as my childhood, but also being like, this is a really pretty amazing industry that one, somebody would be willing to do that. But at the same, and at the same time, like, you know, everybody was there supporting an 18 year old kid that was still didn't know really what he was going to do with himself. And so that was a, uh, that was a really, really cool experience. Where else did your adventures on New York take you? You know, I tried to eat out as much as I could, but obviously being a poor college student, you didn't do do much. So it was, um, you know, I ended up cooking a lot when I moved back here. When I was in Poughkeepsie, I, I worked at Arlington Wine Merchants just to sort of, because I love to taste wine and uh, it allowed me to go and go down to some of the portfolio tastings um, and also get wine at a discount during college, which is huge. And then when I started graduate school in Columbia, you know, again, because I really wanted to taste I took a job as sort of a part-time buyer um, worker at a little shop called Pet Wines up on 91st between 1st and York. And it was this tiny, tiny little store. It was uh, literally, it was part like pet care grooming and then also like a wine store in the front. It was next to Eli's. Also wasn't like a lot of pet nats at the time, like ahead of the game. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think the pet nat revolution had quite, quite... Hit. I think Rudy Vist had the comment, though, that it was the only place that you could buy good Riesling and watch a dog shit at the same time because uh. they had like an open viewing to the dogs in the back. And it was uh, it was a quirky place. That's for sure. Definitely uniquely New York in many ways. And so we were right down from Eli Zabar, Zabar's at the Vinegar Factory. And so people would shop there and come in. And it was a cool little store, though. The, the guy who ran it was named, a guy named Phil Kotek was really great. And he was really into, you know, early all grower champagne, refused to stock Vuclico, Yellow Label, Moet and Chandon, White Star, all that stuff. So it was early Terry Thies stuff. And then it was Rudy V's German selection and Terry Thies German and Austrian, like some really cool wines. I mean, we were drinking like Schaefer Freulich, you know, as on our discount, I think it was like $10 a bottle at the time. And it was absolutely delicious. And that really allowed me to get out and go to portfolio tastings. So T. Edwards and Palaner and David Bowler. And, so tasting um, around the world. Tasting around the world, which is always really important to me. I took the, while I was here too, I took the first level of the WSET just to sort of give myself some grounding, get a little bit of structure for sort of like something that I had loved in many ways. And I had already sort of been thinking about pursuing the MW at that point. And I kind of wanted to see what it was like. I actually ended up really not liking the class, the WSET classes, but Somehow the MW let me in later anyways. But I think probably the most important thing about New York was that when I was working at Pet Wines, there was a 19-year-old kid that came in and started, uh, you know, just as a stock boy and delivery guy um, named Chris Cottrell. And oh, Chris. Chris, yeah. And so we- So you met 
Chris at Pet once. I met Chris, uh, Chris at Pet when he was a student at Brute College, and I think he wanted to. Oh, okay. Because the way I heard it, you met him when he was an inmate at Rikers. So is that not the case? He could have been an inmate at Rikers, <laughs> given what his side job was at the time. Oh, is so, that true? <laughs> yeah, I think he was trying to get a legit job to. Uh, show income? Show, exactly. Yeah, show yeah, income yeah. and maybe like not make his mom cry if he uh, ever got right. busted. So um, he, uh, so yeah, so he was working and, you know, we worked many long, boring retail hours together. So, I mean, like we realized that we really liked each other, had a similar sense of humor, started, you know, hanging out with each other a lot outside of work and developing a friendship there. And I mean, I don't think I would have known at the time that, you know, Chris and I would be business partners at this point, you know. Because he's almost, a partner at Bedrock. He's a partner know. at Bedrock, and we found it Under the Wire, which is our sparkling project together. Which is a name for when he slipped out of Rikers Under the Wire, right? Exactly. That's, that's what I thought. I mean, the man. imagine that man slipping through Rikers. I mean, like, that's... Uh, <laughs> Security was more lax back then. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and that, I mean, I would say of all the things that I, I got out of New York, I mean, meeting Chris was definitely probably the best thing he compliments me so well in many ways and he's also one of the most he's one of the smartest entered most energetic most thoughtful constantly asking questions but also one of the most fundamentally decent human beings i think yeah, he's I've a ever nice met. guy he's yeah, a really yeah. nice guy i mean um, all jokes aside about the rikers thing yeah just giving, I, I he was I, the nicest inmate in rikers <laughs> it was incredible so. no i joke out of love <laughs> I, I think he's you know really nice guy yeah I, having seen him for a few years, you know, as a younger guy working at Crush and then kind of developing. And yeah. And then he's, and I mean, that's the thing is he's got one of those minds though, that can just, it's always on and he can just, I mean, he could have been a pretty mean stockbroker if he wanted to, just his understanding and of how, you know, numbers work and things work and his ability to decipher personalities. And also the fact that he is a Staten Island kid. He's afraid of nothing. I think it's something that probably was, helped out by Bobby at Crush, who I think is also, sure, you know, sure, like the I lower east side street tough, like afraid of nothing type type thing. And that's a really beautiful thing when you're working in wine and you've got some big personalities and a lot of, you know, wealthy individuals that are used to getting what they want. And I think that's why he became so good at what he did at Crush. So he really made connections with some of the buyers. I think for a guy of his age and knowledge level, he made the buyer connection pretty strong. Absolutely. On, on more than one occasion. I mean, and he's still got people that, you know, bought from him at Crush that, you know, just will call him and talk to him and just ask advice from time to time. I mean, he's kept those connections. And yeah, I mean, it was pretty amazing to see him go from, you know, I think we had this tasting at Pet Wines once where we gave him a white burgundy versus a California Chardonnay. And we're like, this is the same grape. And his eyes just being like, Whoa, to him being like, I remember the first time he came out of La Palais and he was just like listing off the bottles that he had just drunk. And I was just like, damn, that kid, like in six, seven years, like he really, really, you know, did something which is really impressive. And, you know, at the time with Bedrock, I started in 07 as a one man show. I made like 700 cases of wine, but it was sort of always in the back of my head that Chris would be such a great fit. And so, like, finally, it was just about two years ago now we uh, I was able to talk him into leaving his much, much beloved New York and uh, moving out to San Francisco to, to join me at Bedrock. And, and every every morning he doesn't have a bagel, he still gets mad at you? That's oh, my like, God. It's, yeah, it's, uh, needless to say, the lack of uh, late night delivery options in San Francisco, uh, I think, is taxing hard on him. But I think he's also growing to love being in the vineyards a little bit, which is... Uh, seems like he takes well out there. He does. He does. And he's got... One of the best, that that same personality that can apply to, you know, 
wealthy people buying wine applies to growers. Growers, I mean, he just oh, I gets along with every single walk of life and the, like the, you, the, the you somewhat know. craggly. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, get like along well with everyone. The seventy-year-old German who has something that he wants to do this way still somehow finds it. You know, just it's hard not to just like, you know, warm up to him. So uh, he's uh, yeah, he's been an incredible asset for you know for me for Bedrock for Under the Wire. It's going to be really fun to see what he does. But why did you end up starting Bedrock? I mean, because it sounded like you were doing your masters at Columbia, mm. and then so why you know I you know the wine could have been. A sidelight. It could have been a, a something, a hobby, or just something you enjoyed connoisseurship. But you decided, hey, you know what? We're going to do this full steam. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I think it came. You know, I came out of the sort of academic cocoon of Vassar, where I, I mean, it's just one of the most bucolic campuses you've ever seen. I mean, it makes everything about academia seem incredible. And then I went to Columbia for a couple of years, and I kind of got cured of that. Because um, right, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. Yeah. And there's these amazing drug deals. And amazing drug deals. There's amazing. The like, grime is just incredible on campus. <laughs> and the fact that I mean, the classes were huge. I mean, like oh, it is was. That true? I mean, it was incredible. I mean, my largest class at Vassar, I think, was 25 students and taught by a full professor. In graduate school, I still being taught by other grad students. And I was like, yeah, it's wow. not not wow. what you really sign up or you're paying for. And so, and I wasn't totally convinced. I realized I just wasn't going to be a very good academic. I didn't like the pettiness of the infighting. I absolutely- The pettiness and infighting is insane. It's just like they would, like you'd have a political science professor and a history professor assign the same text and then proceeded to completely talk shit about the other department and how they would never assign that text. And you're like, but you just assigned the same text. I mean, it, it was, it just was like that. I just didn't feel like that was where I wanted to go with my life. I mean, but I still have always had an incredible love for history and politics. And, you know, I did um, a master's in American studies, which is very much, you know, combination of everything from sociology to urban theory to history, politics, uh, English. And I wrote my thesis on, uh, you know, casino gambling as an urban reconstruction tool in Atlantic City. So, I mean, a lot of the cross crossover stuff there. Um, but you but could I, see how that could be with with vineyards too. Exactly. Like urban renewal, but it's not urban. Right. And also there's some incredible history there too. I mean, it's when it, you know, I, I, I moved to California in 2005 with the idea that I was going to do something in the wine industry, that I was going to start the MW, but I didn't really know exactly what that was going to be. Was I going to import wine? Was I going to go try to work abroad? Was I going to, you know, I, I didn't really know. Cause I, the other thing too, is I really loved the full gamut of wine available. And I, and at the time, 2005, I really felt like California, except for a couple producers was really stuck in a rut. I mean, it there's seems like it. That's when I was, it like, was just tapped out of California. I totally. Like, I mean, whatever. for good reason. I mean, there are all these big, blousy, high alcohol, oaky wines that just, you know, everybody was still trying to make 1997 vintage over and over right. again. Over and over again. And like in Zinfandel, I have to say like, you know, Ravenswood had sold the Constellation, so that was starting to become corporatized. Almost, there's really no other Zinfandels in the market that I even wanted to drink. I mean, Ridge was always been solid, but other than that, there wasn't much there. So, you know, it wasn't like there was much calling me back. Um, but I knew I was going to be in the industry somehow. So I worked at Ravenswood in 2005, and that was a trip. We did 12,000 tons with 22 people. Again, all native yeast fermented those still, which I was I'm always impressed by. Because Ravenswood was making 800,000 cases a year at that point. Um, big difference from when you grew up. Big difference from when I grew up. And obviously, very different corporate structure. At that point, a lot of the vineyards that dad had 
worked so hard to put together were still there over, I think, the last five or six years. Sort of the corporate buying strategy has meant that a lot of the vineyards that dad worked so hard to put together have kind of been let go, um, which is too bad. And But it was a really good experience just to get my hands dirty again. And I mean, God, when you're filling like 600 barrels a day, I mean, I was like literally like writing poetry on the tanks to try to keep myself from going insane. Um, and uh, then I went to Australia, which was really interesting. I worked at Hardy's, which is uh, was at the time the biggest wine company Very in big, Australia, right. huge. And that was really interesting because at the particular Hardy's Tintara facility in McLaren Vale, we were making a whole gamut of wines from stuff that was going to be like $4 bag and box to some pretty amazing own rooted dry farmed, like 130 year old Shiraz and sand from like Blewett Springs. And it was, it was a really interesting experience because, you know, I think that they think about winemaking, at least there, it was much more like food science. You know, it was like, if they can add something, they're going to add it. And it was a really great experience for me at that point, because I had to do things like add polyvinyl, polypropylene, casein, milk, gelatin. I had to carbon fine, you know, wines that had gone pink to get them back to white. I had to do all of like the dirty stuff that goes into making commodity wines. Commodity wine. And I think that, you know, I think that that's a really important thing to know because it's almost like you need to know that extreme so you know how to go back to the other extreme in many ways. Or at Um, least you know why it's important to not, you know, to because people, sometimes I I think that people think, well, Less manipulation, what does it really mean? Exactly. Like, well, if you actually go see what manipulation means, right. it becomes very clear. It's Ex- actually easier to see it that way. Absolutely. I mean, and when you're like, when you've got some really beautiful fruit coming in, and then you see it being inoculated with eight different strains of yeast hit with tannin and enzyme and everything else. Um, and then they would have a control lot where they did nothing to, and the control lot was invariably better, but they still felt like they had to do something. It was just like that mentality was, it was really interesting, but it was very pervasive there, but it definitely like, it was great. I've never really had to do any of those things to my own wines, but it was really good to get to do that, to see how it was made. And the fact is, is that commodity wines all over the world are the best that they've ever been, be it from California or from Australia because of that technology. And if you're trying to make you know, wines that taste the same every time, they've gotten really good at it. So it's interesting to see that side of it, um, but certainly is not sort of what, you know, what moves you on the inside, though. What did really move me, though, was on the weekends in Australia, I'd work with um, Drew Noon, who had been the winemaker at Tyrrell's, and so, like, had made all the old Semions, and those are all highly interventionist, but they can be really good. Um, And he made these wines in the most rudimentary way. I mean, literally... Everything the, the was the noon wines. The noon wines. I mean, that old, um, you know, bush vine Grenache from around the estate. Um, some really great old Shiraz. A little bit of Cabernet. He made that like Eclipse wine. The Eclipse wine, which, and I honestly, to me, the wines are better now. But they, even then, they were way too high in alcohol. They were way like for my personal taste. But I had Mine to. Too. Yes, <laughs> I think for many in many ways. <laughs> I mean, there was kind of. I think he was sort of one of the leaders of that you know, the reason why the Grateful Palette wine's kind of like face-planted in many ways. Although I've seen him recently, and he's now doing all-native yeast fermentation. He's, you know, experimenting with whole cluster, which was never done in Australia when I was there. So he's at least, I think, trying to experiment some. And But, you know, he would make these wines, they would be hand-pitchforked into this 
old distemmer, I mean, just ground to bits, and then fermented in these old Australian hardwood open top tanks, manually punched down, manually basket pressed, put up to Fudra, a little bit of American oak. And to me, it was the exact opposite of what was being done at Hardy's Tentara. So it was really interesting to see wines, even though I didn't love them stylistically, they were so soulfully and authentically made that, you know, that was really interesting to see. And it also reminded me of, you know, how one could make wine on a small scale. And in many ways, the early bedrock wines were made exactly like the noon wines, just in terms of manually pitchforked into the destemmer, fermented in open top, in this case, redwood tanks, manually punched down, made in a place that had no cooling whatsoever. It was, you know, it, no forklifts could get inside because I had eight foot ceilings. So, you know, it, it allowed me to see that you could really make quality wine in obviously as you define quality wine, but it's within that, that formulation on that situation. But I mean, now bedrock, I mean, bedrock's a little bigger now. It has so. a little bigger. I mean, you have yeah. all the, all the toys. Like we when have, I go, I'm like, this, this looks yeah. like, you know, when, remember the living room and the TV show silver spoons, where he had like the arcade games in the living room. Yes. <laughs> You're like, wow, dude, you got all the toys. Yeah. You know, it, like it is, all the cool stuff is there. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. I mean, now you walk in and you see all of our foodras and concrete. And, um, you know, we've luck. I mean, with the with the relative success so far, we've been really able to like play and like really experiment and really try to fine tune the winemaking in many ways. So it's really wonder to, wonderful to have our own space. Although, you know, that space just came about last year. We this built it new, going yeah. into 2013 because we were doing a lot of custom crush before then. And, you know, I started uh, Bedrock in a, like it was a 550 square foot chicken coop. I mean, it was tiny with all the barrels hand stacked, everything done by hand. And, you know, in 2008, when we got that great old vine Semion, I realized that I needed a little bit better temperature control for the white. So I started making that at Inkadu Custom Crush. And, you know, and then we got Hudson Syrah. And then I was like, oh, you know, then we moved a little bit more into Custom Crush. With the Hudson, you did kind of a cool thing where you made it like three different ways. Yeah, so that the original 2008 Hudson, first off, I was so excited to get that fruit. It was, uh, you know, some of the wines from Hudson Vineyard made by our friend Michael Havens were like defining wines for me growing up. Kongsgard, that Syrah is killer. That Kongsgard Syrah is incredibly good. And, you know, and he and Michael were the first to have Syrah planted for them there, like back in 91, which is crazy to think that that's when Syrah started getting planted in Carneros so recently. But yeah, we did... Syrah three different ways. So, you know, it's the classic, like I wanted when I started Bedrock to really have no limits, to be able to experiment and do what I wanted. And so we made part of it like old school. We made part of it like clop, basically a hundred percent whole cluster, no new oak. The other one sort of like new wave coat roti, sort of Jean-Michel Jurin, Couleron style, where it was co-fermented with some Viognier. Um, it was completely destemmed and then put down foudras and demi moods. And then the third way I made like Chris Ringland Barossa Shiraz. So mm-hmm. fermented in new oak, completely destemmed, picked riper, fermented into new oak, and put down to even more new oak after that. But it was the exact same plot of grapes. So to be able to sort of have these three expressions of what Syrah could do in California, which I think Syrah fundamentally is just a really misunderstood variety out of California. So how so? I think it's in some ways, I think it suffers a lot from what Zinfandel suffers from in that right now it's kind of got an identity crisis. I mean, you, you see people that make it in Napa that love it because Syrah has everything that they want in Cabernet. There's no green. It's got tons of color. You can pick it ripe. You can make these huge opulent wines out of it. But then it can be like, 
you know, a Pax Nellison ranch or an Arnott Roberts Clary ranch, 100% whole cluster. Pepri is all get up, 12% alcohol, no new oak. And people just kind of like, which are they, what are they going to get? And then beyond that, I think you can actually make really great quality Syrah from Mendocino to Amador to Paso Robles to Napa to Sonoma to Santa Cruz Mountains to everywhere. And so it takes into a much, it takes geographically a much wider expanse. And that I think is confusing. I mean, you, the over under on what a $35 bottle of Napa Cabernet is going to taste like, I mean, there's, they all taste really, really similar and Syrah doesn't quite have that. And that's one of the reasons why Syrah is so fun, but I think it's the reason why it's been really confusing to consumers in the marketplace. And I would argue that there's been no, there's been no wines, very few wines made from Syrah that are at a price point that is reasonable enough for people to buy into it. Like if you think about from California, the number of 18 to $24 Syrahs on the shelf that actually taste like Syrah, that, that, good, yeah. that are peppery, that aren't like, you know, planked with oak, that aren't just all that stuff. I mean, it's like it's Copan. It's, you, I, it's like you run out of options really, really fast. And I think that's a problem because there's such great Syrah being made at the high end, but there's not a lot of stuff to get people to buy into the grape to begin with. And I think that there's going to just has to be more wines made like that. The problem is, is that everybody is terrified of making Syrah. And so they do this toe in the water approach and they don't want to make too much. And because they make it because of the market or because of the grape or I think because of the market, they hear all the jokes, you know, what's the difference between Syrah and syphilis. You can get rid of syphilis. I mean, like you hear all those things and, um, everybody and winemakers all want to make straw, I think, but they also are being told that we can't sell it, we can't sell it. And as a result, nobody really puts that much effort into it. What I have seen, though, is that from those wineries that really do focus on straw, be it Pax, be it Copan, be it um, Edmund St. John, maybe Edmund St. John, Tensley, Coupe, Arcadian, I mean, they can sell their wines, but the problem is, is that they had to go all in. They make five or six different ones, and they are the and they are catering to this limited demographic of people that really love Syrah, and so they've kind of like locked that bit down. But it's scary, right? You have to actually go all in on a grape that everybody tells you you're not going to sell. So, so what did you learn making the Hudson Three Ways? What when you came out of that experience? What did you think about the different wines that you'd made? I thought that they were all really interesting. My own leaning has always been towards older school styles of wine. Um, and I think that in general, my winemaking, particularly with Syrah, has continued to gravitate towards that direction. I mean, I'd say in 2008 and 2009, starting with Hudson and Griffin's Lair Vineyard, you know, I was, you know, toe in the water approach to clusters, 20 to 40%, except for that 08 that I did 100% on, a little bit more new oak. You know, I was trying to, you know, play it a little bit safe, but also showing vineyard separation. And, you know, now Syrah makes, I think it's also in part because relative to the rest of the wines, we, we don't make that much of it. But to this day, I mean, like this year, Griffin's Lair is 100% whole cluster. Um, Alder Springs, 80% whole cluster. Hudson is up to 60 or 70% whole cluster. And, you know, that's just based on the year, you know, what I think the vine, the wines are looking, grapes are looking like out in the vineyard. And the overall amount of New York, New York has been cut down a lot. I also tend to use quite a bit of Vignet to co-ferment. You know, my, the way that I always look at Syrah is that if you look at the Syrahs that we all adore, like Jamais, Jasmine, Clap, you know, th- those wines, they all in texture and profile and aromatic and the liftedness of those wines, um, Ganon or, uh, you know, Creo, they all resemble 
to me, winds far more from like the Cote de Nuit than any manifestation of New World Syrah. So the thing for me in making California Syrah is that you've got to get dance into the wines. You've got to get lift and you've got to get texture and you've got to get perfume. And I think the three key things there is not picking too late, cluster, and viognier. And that's sort of like the three things that can really help churn, make Syrah not just the monolithic beast, which I think it can so easily be in California where we do have so much sunshine. And, you know, we could, this year, we could have picked Hudson at 30 bricks if we wanted to, but, you know, and I think some people did, but, you know, it means that you have to be out there and being like, no, we're picking this at 23 and a half, 24. But is it a soil issue sometimes as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think you look at the the schist and the granite and all that stuff. Absolutely. And the texture. I mean, I think the thing that you see in the Northern Rhone is that, you know, they don't have the potassium issues that we do in California. You know, they, in many cases, use cluster to help bump their pHs upwards. Okay, because there's potassium in stems. Because there's potassium in the stems. While in in California, to be honest, at Hudson, we use less whole cluster on that site because it's already a high pH site. And I don't want a pH of 4.1 or 4.2 or to have to, you know, acidify the wine. So, um, you know, we, we sort of have to play with the, you know, with what we've got there. And I think across the board, you see a lot of Syrah that is higher pH due to the soils. And I think also probably due to the viticulture in many ways, too. I mean, do I think Hudson would be a lower pH site if they backed off on some of their more modern methods of farming, you know, fertigation and other stuff? Absolutely. But I'm not sure, you know, how much that would play with the owner. So, Well, I mean, I feel like you're in that situation a few times. Like you, you're getting fruit that you really like, but then sometimes you wonder to yourself, I wonder if this was farmed differently, but it's yeah. not really up to me. Absolutely. And that's something that I think we are looking at more and more with Bedrock and that, um, you know, we are moving to a, a model where we control more and more of our fruit. And it's something that obviously you can only do once you have some years of sales and some cash flow and other things. But, you know, as of... You know, this last year, we just bought a vineyard out in Lodi next to, to Tegan's great Kirschman vineyard. It's going to take five, six years to actually get it to look decent. You know, Sodini Ranch, which is an old Rocchioli vineyard off of Limerick Lane that had kind of fallen into disrepair. We took that and are leasing it now. And, you know, given it the love that we've seen has worked so well at other vineyard sites, you know, compost, cover crops, spading, breaking of hard pan, introduction of predators to you know, for spider mites and leaf hoppers and, you know, the use of more biologic sprays rather than relying on any synthetic fungicides. And um, so we're doing that at more and more of our vineyards. And I think that we're already starting to see the results because really what we learned from our own vineyard, from Bedrock Vineyard, which my dad bought in 2004, um, is that it takes a while, but after eight, nine, 10 years of proper inputs, a vineyard that has been badly mistreated and bedrock had been badly mistreated. It was dramatically overcropped and it was over irrigated and over fertigated. Um, and had and, some weird trellising too. Huh? And had some weird, tre- oh, that GDC. Oh, I hate that thing. And, uh, you know, we found that after all these years of soil work and all these years of literally being like, you know, the, the, our mantra is a bit, you know, healthy soil, healthy vines. It's not, you know, anything revolutionary. You talk to Eric Texier, you talk to anybody that's you know, uh, who, who values soil, you know, they realize that healthy wines come from healthy soils. But when we first bought that vineyard, we'd have Zinfandels that were coming out, you know, finished ML at like 4.1 pH, high TA. So even, 
if you wanted to adjust it, you couldn't adjust it. And then after all these years of soil inputs worked, one, this year in this historic drought, we put water on once. And I think that was just to make Diane feel better. I don't think we actually had to. And we have really much lower pHs. Things are hitting the winery at 3.5 to 3.6. The wines are fresher the, and the wines are just simply better. So to, having seen that that can work, have, being able to look at these other vineyards and be like, yeah, the numbers are a little fucked up right now. The pHs are high. And then you look at the way it's been farmed and usually it's been a little bit nozzle heady over irrigation, fertigation, all that other stuff. You can be like, there is a way out of it though. And I think that's also really critical when it comes to a lot of these old vineyards is knowing that you can actually turn them around. I mean, a lot of people just look at old vineyards and a lot of them get ripped out because people are like, oh, they're not cropping much anymore. The numbers are out of whack. Let's just rip it out and start over. And I think that what we've seen and I think what Tegan's seen and what Mike Office has seen and what David Gates at Ridge has seen is that through really good farming practice, you can turn these vineyards around and they actually make something pretty startlingly good as well. One of the things that's kind of cool about Bedrock is you have some older different grape varieties like Mission mm-hmm. or what might be called Pais and other places yeah, parts or cri- of the world. Criola Chica. Alicante Boucher. Yeah. What's it like to work with some of those grape varieties? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's one of the things, I mean, I think it goes back to the American studies thing in some ways that you've got these incredible ancient old field blends in California that are this hodgepodge of miscellaneous grape varieties that are Iberian or French and Italian. And a lot of them come from like the Austro-Hungarian empire. Just, I mean, the Zinfandel originally came out of the Habsburgian nursery to Long Island, then around to Napa. I mean, like it's a bit of a survivor grape and, you know, they really are this encapsulation of kind of a melting pot that, you know, the United States is and that California is. And on top of that, now that these vines are so old and that you've got these, you know, Oakville Farmhouse Vineyard, which which you saw was, you know, that vineyard is planted at the base of Harlan, is catty corner to Tokelon. It's the oldest vines left in Oakville. And it's a field blend that's predominantly Negrette and Mondeuse. And then Zinfandel, Carignan, Cab Franc, Chenin Blanc, like all these other random things that are in it. And the wine is pretty amazing. And to me, it smells more like Oakville than it does about and than any of the representative varieties that are there. And so I think that there's something really interesting to be taken away from working with all these varieties. And it forces you, I think, to also, as a winemaker, kind of humble yourself to the vineyard in some ways, because you're not going to be able to, you know, pick blueberries like they pick and like they do in Napa. You're not going to be able to, you know, sort. You have to kind of go into that vineyard. My dad says that you got to, says you have to sort of pick on the gestalt. You walk in and you look at the canopies and you look at the preponderant varieties and you sort of see what seems ready to go. And there's just this moment which you go, okay, I think this vineyard is ready. And that's when you pick. And, but it forces you to embrace the chaos in some ways and have this trust that, you know, these old vines, these old dry farm vines with really established root systems are going to make something pretty great irrespective of whether they have these crazy old varieties in them. But you do so much work with field blends, like yeah. with also with blending in general, like the Shebang bottling, which yeah. is a lower end blended grape wine that you make that at a lower price point. Yeah. So I, I imagine that you have some idea of what a grape will bring to that blend. Yeah. So what do those grapes bring to a blend? How should I understand Carignan or Cinso or a Mission or Negrette or Mondeuse? I mean, what, what do those do in a wine? So, I mean, I'd say if we look at maybe the top 
the five most planted out there because we've found over 50 different varieties in these old vineyards. But I mean, there's like two Albilo Mayor vines at Carlisle, you know, and Persan and Millard and crazy ones. But, you know, I think if you look at the main ones, you look at Petite Syrah or Darif and, you know, that just provides color and tannin. It ripens early. In many cases, if it's a really late year, like, you know, if it's a cold year, it's the one right, you know, it's the mixed black that's going to get ripe. Tempranillo is the same way in many ways. Alicante is just pure color. It's a what is called a tinturier, um, which is from the French word tincture. It's got dark, dark red juice. So it's got really high color content, anthocyanin content. And so it's always there to add color. And then you'll see things like Carignan and Grenache. And those are not high color varieties for the most part, although Carignan this year was like crazy color, but they're really there to add acidity and lift. And what's really interesting is you see that despite the fact that there's total chaos in some of these vineyards and there are these like one-offs of all these things, you do generally see that in a vineyard like Carlisle Vineyard, out in Russian River Valley or Dolonsek Ranch out in Russian River Valley, these great vineyards planted in the 19, one planted in 1910 and one planted in 1937, the mixed blacks all are there to kind of offset the natural conditions. It's cold out there. Things don't get ripe. There's a lot more Petite Straw. There's a lot more Alicante. There's a lot more Grand Water La Calmette, which is another Tinturier. So they're there to sort of make up for what the potential deficiencies of sort of the main grape Zinfandel is. You go to Geyserville, and it's a whole different thing. It's hot up there. And so you see a lot more Grenache. You see a lot more Carignan. You see more Negrette. You see um, varieties that tend to ripen later, but also provide a lot more acidity. Um, so, I mean, you you think about it, and you go and back and you read even the reports of the California State Viticultural Commission back in the 1880s, and folks like Charles Wetmore and Eugene Hilgard and these early founders of California wine, and they were advising people to plant these mixed vineyards because they wanted to have one, a wine that would ferment dry. They knew all the issues that we have with Zinfandel back as far as 1886, that it tends to soak up in tank, that it can stick, that it can have high alcohol, that it can have a lot of sugar. And they wanted you to plant varieties that would offset that depending on what area you were in. And, you know, they weren't trying to make variety wine back in the day, they're varietal labeled wine, you know, they're making California claret or California burgundy. And so their idea was just to have a wine that fit that description that would be stable and would come out of the vineyard. And so there's actually, I think, some pretty remarkable logic behind the reason why these old vines or why the vineyards were planted the way that they were, you know, up to 120 years ago. So, I mean, this is obvious to you, but maybe not to everyone listening <laughs> that like a California Burgundy back then wouldn't have been Pinot Noir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pinot Noir was actually, they, they experimented planting both Pinot Noir and Cabernet. And they didn't like Cabernet because it wouldn't set. And I think that that's because at the time they were trying to graft it onto St. George. And to this day, Cabernet doesn't like to set on St. George. Um, and Pinot Noir just didn't crop very much at tiny little clusters. And so they were making, yeah, wines of a style. So, you know, and usually claret would be lighter and burgundy would be heavier. You talk to, or you see interviews with like Louis P. Martini from back in the 40s and 50s. And he would see, he'd be like, yeah, our California burgundy blend was 50% Petite Syrah, maybe 20% Val de Gay, and then Zinfandel and Alicante. And then the claret would have, you know, more light, it'd have the Pinot St. George or Negret in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a little bit more Zinfandel on the lighter thing. So they, I mean, not only they had their idea of what they're trying to make and even what they're trying to make didn't really fit the description of 
what those wines were like where they originally came. But that was indeed what they were trying to do. They were making a blend. They weren't making varietal wines. I mean, but that also we were talking about this before once was that was the era when claret itself may have been blended with say like Hermitage style. Absolutely. So maybe what they were receiving on this side of the ocean was you know Rhone wine that had been blended into Bordeaux. Right. So Absolutely. What, I mean, I think that there's know. there's no doubt that that was going on all the time and. So they Bordeaux may have had then, Alicante Boucher yeah, in there, Bordeaux or whatever. Yeah, and well, and it, like, it is so know. funny because um, even today when we were in Chateauneuf to pop uh, this spring, I was driving down the road in Chateauneuf and I looked over and I was like, that is a shit ton of Alicante Boucher right there. So I hopped out of the car and I drove. I walked over and I was like, this is indeed Alicante Boucher, but it's not one of the accepted varieties in Chateauneuf to pop. And we were talking with um, the guy from... Um, Gigandas, um, Chateau Saint-Combe, Louis Burial, sure, and uh, who I, I love. And he was just like, he was like, one, it's a shame that it was never accepted. And two, yeah, it's all planted right on the periphery and everybody, you know, theoretically picks it for Cote de Rhone, but it goes into their Chateauneuf de Pop. So. Well, it's also true in the Piemonte. It's called Tintore and it's not uncommon. Yeah. Like, I mean, you'd, you see it there. It's a pretty... Chris always mocks me for my love of Alicante, but to me, it's like one of the, all. it's like the draft horse of grapes. It, it does so much stuff. It's certainly not sexy and it's certainly not fine, but at the same time, you know, in 2011, frankly, it saved our ass. I mean, I was co-fermenting two or 3% Alicante with virtually everything in the winery because wines were coming in so light and so low in alcohol. And so, and Alicante doesn't, it's not that high in alcohol. It's a very late ripener, but it still was giving the wines a little bit more density and a little bit more body. And, you know, that was, you know, whether maybe the wines needed it or not, it certainly made me feel better. <laughs> a great variety that you also work with is Semyon. And oh, yeah. How did that come about and what's it like to work with? Semyon is incredible. You know, the the Semyon that we work with is, I think, the oldest Semyon left in the New World. It was planted in 1886 up at 800 feet at Monterosso. You know, we we mentioned this earlier. I, I found out about it when Diane, my vineyard manager, was like, you know, when I worked at Simi, you know, we used to get this great Semyon from Monterosso. She's like, I highly doubt it's there. Like Monterosso used to have things like Full Blanche and Barbera, all of which have been ripped out subsequently. The Barbera, that's really unfortunate. Um, and uh, so I approached Gallo about it and they're like, oh yeah, it's still there. Um, and then what were they doing with it? It was going into Rancho Zabaco Sauvignon Blanc. They were cropping it at like six tons per acre dry farm semion that's 120 plus years old, which is just crazy to begin with on a mountain site. So it certainly doesn't lack for vigor. Um, and then they were picking it at like 19 bricks and then they just didn't have anything to do with it. So I offered them an acreage contract on it, basically said, you know, we'll pay you this set amount. And as long as you do the farming that we want, and it's made some pretty amazing wines for us, both of the dessert wine ilk, and then also of the, of the dry white, you know, white Bordeaux style wine, which is one of my favorite types of white wine. I think it's one of the great very underrated white wines of the world. I think in part because they're just so expensive that very few people get to taste them at their best and with age and all that type of stuff. But So those two kinds of wine, do you make them in the same year or does a year give you certain materials or do different plants give you different materials? Like how do you decide this one's going to be sweet and that one's going to be dry? It's a good question. So it's we're still trying to figure out the dessert wine. I've I've I think we've done really well with it twice and we've completely failed twice as well with it. So 
and it really is dependent on the year. Every year we'll pick about half the block for Cuvée Caritas, which is our um, our Bordeaux Blanc style wine. That's named uh, after your dog. Which is named after my beautiful Great Pyrenees Caritas. Um, and uh, then the rest uh, we will hang for dessert wine. But it's interesting, like in 11, which was a great year for Botrytis, as everybody knows in California. Yeah, uh, <laughs> some, some know it all too well ex- ex- to their rue. You know? Exactly. I mean, it was, I mean, that was, that was, an, that was that vintage I learned a lot in. Um, the, uh, we got that fruit in and it came in at 42 bricks on November 1st. Uh, and it finished at, with 211 grams per liter of residual sugar. We were able to make like one barrel off of an acre. Um, so tiny, nothing really. And, uh, the wine was pretty amazing. The next year was a, again, a late year, but there wasn't any rain and it got to be about 30 bricks. And we tried to stop the fermentation with uh, residual sugar in it. And it just kept powering on. I mean, I popped that thing with like a hundred parts per million of sulfur and it fermented to 17.1% alcohol wow. and with like 35 grams per liter of residual sugar. I mean, like, there's nothing I can do with it. I mean, it's just, it's still sitting in barrel. I'm like, hopefully maybe one day it'll be turned into something, but it's, uh, you know, so that was the the ultimate fail. This year, we've got higher hopes. I mean, it, it really makes you appreciate how bloody difficult making botrytized sweet wine is. And also, I mean, every time I make it, I swear I'm going to go buy more, like outlier Appalachian sweet wine from Bordeaux, like Lupiac and Cadillac and saint Clermont, And because- they have it so tough. They get no money for their wine. The French only drink it with Christmas foie gras now, it seems like. And it's there's no profit in it. It's so hard to make. So it's, uh, you know, it's I have a lot of respect for people that can make it really, really well. Does it fruit set uniform in, in the Semillon in Monterosso or is there differences or... The fruit is pretty uniform. What we've done to actually help with some crop out there, we've had a couple of years where it's um, whites tend to not like to crop particularly well out off of spur pruning, which is when you cut back to two spurs, they prefer to go one on cane pruning. But these are head-trained vines without wires. So what we've done is we've spur pruned almost the entire vine, but then we take two canes and then we tie the two canes together over the top of the top of the vine, sort of like in an old basket shape pruning. They do it in the Barossa sometimes for, for Shiraz. And then that way we can make sure that we at least have something out there. And then in years like this, you know, we had really great set and we dropped 50% of the fruit on the ground. The real trick with Semion though, is that it really responds differently to light exposure. Um, so how so we found that, you know, when you have fruit that's really exposed to light, you really get the development of sort of the more unctuous figgy, um, sort of more overt fruit character and then stuff that's sort of hidden back in the canopy. And you get a lot of that when you've got these crazy old head trained vines, you get more of, it's not really what I call a piercing character, which is what bell pepper is and uh, Cabernet, but it's almost, that's where you get like that tobacco leaf. There's like that slightly greener, more tea characteristic that comes out of the fruit. And I actually think one of the reasons why the Semion from Monterosso gains so much complexity is that you have both. You know, unlike, and I think it's actually a reason why I think head training for large clustered varieties generally is better, is because you actually increase the number of exposures within the canopy and you get a more, a a broader, you know, a broader cross-section of fruit flavor out of it. So you do have some of the unctuousness, but you also have some of the the tobacco-y character. And 
Um, just like how, you know, pyrazine and Cabernet starts turning into cedar and tobacco later on in life. I think some of those sort of more overt green characters in youth really is what allows Semyon to develop so beautifully with age. I mean, Semyon is, I think, one of the more underappreciated varieties for its sheer longevity. I mean, we mentioned the Tyrrells, that one, like the Hunter Valley Semions, but then then you look at, you know, Bordeaux Blanc, and those wines can go for a really, really long time. Sometimes I get a green character in a Bordeaux Blanc, and I think I've always ascribed it to either, oh, well, they've blended in Sauvignon Blanc to the Semion, or I've thought to myself, well, they've probably used a lot of sulfur, and it's made it taste a little green. But you're saying it, it actually could be a grape situation. I think both of those two things that you said are also possibilities, but I think it also comes back to the, the character. I would say that in Bordeaux, though, because they're working off of, you know, usually a double guillot system on Semillon, they're really leafing it high. And that's what we see in most modern vineyards when things are out on wire or out on cane, you really only have two fruit exposures, right? You've got one side and then you've got the other. And then everybody tends to leaf really heavily. So you tend to get pretty by, equal. By which you mean take the leaves off. Take the leaves off around the fruit. So basically you get full sun penetration on the cluster. And in Bordeaux, I think they have to do it because it's so prone to botrytis and they need that airflow. In California, I think they do it because they like more uniform ripening in many ways. And I think that, you know, in some ways, like the, I think it's one of the reasons why like Hardy Semion from Dirty and Rowdy is so good though, is that, you know, that, that fruit is sort of California sprawly. It's got, you know, it's, it's not perfectly two-dimensional. There's like some three-dimensionality to it. And I think that um, that's the reason why that wine can be pretty complex and not to mention the skin fermentation and all the other so cool stuff he does. The complexity is in the vineyard already. Like I think the complexity is in the vineyard. How I, there are different grapes. I think, yeah. And I think that that should be, I think that that can be stated about any wine though, really. I mean, the, the complexity or the potential for the complexity is there. I mean, that's where I think the focus on farming becomes so critical. And I think also the focus on vine age, which we put a huge, huge focus on. But it seems like sometimes things with, you know, maybe a visual sorting table or optical sorting table, it seems like the complexity goes away through over sorting. Absolutely. Where people are like, oh, I want it all like this. And then it tastes all like that in the finished wine. Absolutely. It's one of the things that one of my pet peeves with a lot of the way that modern California wine is made is this, I think, hyper diligence when it comes to having perfect fruit. And I think that many of the greatest wines that we've had from California certainly did not come from perfect fruit. Many of the great wines we've had in the world did not come from perfect fruit. And in some ways, I think you just lose, you become more monochrome the more you get like this perfect 28 brick, 3.7 pH blueberry. I mean, like, if you want your wine to taste like, you know, ripe blueberries, that's what you're going to, you know, that's what you're going to get. But for me, it's sort of like, if you feel like you have to sort the complexity out of your vineyard, then one, why are you working with that vineyard to begin with? And two, you know, I don't know, why are you making wine to begin with in some ways? I mean, because you're just trying to find uniformity. And I think a focus on uniformity, whether it be whether it be Nazi Germany or whether it be California Cabernet just makes for a really uninteresting result in many ways. Um, yeah. So you work with a few different vineyards. Some of them are pretty, and I mean, obviously all have their ups and downs, but some of them are, have really interesting histories. Yeah. So what's a vineyard like Evangelo and how did it get going and what's there? Oh, Evangelo vineyard. One of my, one of my favorites. Um, 
So Evangelo is out in Antioch, Antioch, Oakley area of Contra Costa County. You think about it in the Contra Costa means counter coast. So it's sort of the opposite coast of the bay in many ways in that uh, the vineyard abuts the the Sacramento River Delta. It's right where the Sacramento and the San Joaquin Rivers come together, and then they flush out into the bay. And the area was uh, settled predominantly by Portuguese because they're they're Portuguese. I have a lot of fishing in their culture, and sure. they were there originally to to do a lot of fishing. But then they were also planting almonds and grapes out there as well. And what's really amazing about Evangelo is that the vineyard, much like the other vineyards out there, it's own rooted and it's planted on 40-foot banks of beach sand. So own-rooted vines in California are incredibly rare to begin with because you need sandy soils. Otherwise, they were devastated by phylloxera. All of our other vineyards outside of Kershaman are on St. George rootstock because they were planted after that wave of phylloxera in the late 1870s, early 1880s came through. And um, so to be able to see an example of pre-phylloxera grapes, I mean, that's pretty cool anywhere in the world, right? And it's a pretty amazing vineyard, too, because it's Zinfandel, uh, Morved, or Mitaro, as they call it out there, and uh, Carignan, or Kerrigan, as they call it out there. And it's, an, it's a fascinating vineyard because it's the hottest area from a temperature standpoint that we work with. It gets really, really hot by for humans out there. It's like 100 degrees is not uncommon in July and August. Um, because it's right on the delta, there's really no frost pressure because there's such a big body of water there. And so they start pruning really early too. So that kind of moves the whole ripening cycle up. So it invariably means that we're picking Evangelo carrying on for Rosé, which we pick very early, um, you know, usually the first week of August. So it's a really, really early pick for us. But what's fascinating is that these vines are dry farmed. They've been cross cultivated. They've been sulfur dusted. That's essentially it since the beginning of time sand, so it has almost no organic matter, but these vines roots because it's 40-foot banks of beach sand go forever. I mean, they go all the way down to the water table. Um, so even this year where Contra Costa County got four inches of rain in 18 months, they still were producing three, four tons per acre of, of fruit. The other environmental factor out there is that it's the only place in California where I could say we have almost our own mistral in many ways. It's almost like the California mistral because um, the whole state of California, the interior valleys of California almost act like a lung. And so whenever it gets really hot in the interior, it sucks the fog off the ocean into the bay, which is why San Francisco is so cold and foggy during the summer. And But the result of that is that the delta is the path of least resistance for the fog to get out to Lodi and then even more interior from there. So the antecedent winds to all that fog come whistling through the, the Delta region. And so it's not uncommon at Evangelo Vineyard for there to be 20, 25, 30 mile per hour winds starting at like one or two o'clock in the afternoon. So even though it's bloody hot out there for the vines, the way that they transpirate, they just kind of shut down. Their stomata shut down. And because they shut down in the afternoon, they really keep their natural acidity in a pretty amazing way. Evangelo is the one vineyard that I have, I've been working with it since 2011. I have Never, ever had to even think about adjusting a wine. Everything is almost uniformly. Oh, I thought it was like low in nutrients and stuff. Well, it is low in nutrients. So that's, um, and I don't, I guess I wouldn't consider that an adjustment. I mean, we definitely, the yawns or the, sorry, the yeast assimilable nitrogen levels are very 
very low from a winemaking perspective. So the vineyard can be prone to reduction. But invariably, if you're picking at 23 and a half, 24, you have pHs in the three twos or three threes that finish in the three fives. So they make these wines that are, you know, crackling bright with acidity and vibrance. And for a variety like Morved, that's a really interesting thing. And then they're grown on sand. So you have these incredibly fine, sandy tannins. Like if you think about Sable in the Rhone or any place else or in parts of Corsica where they've got a really sandy soils, you, you see this fineness that's there. So there's this sort of exoticness, there's this brightness, but also the wines are, they're fresh, but they're also really soft, which is a really interesting combination when particularly compared to a lot of the more volcanically derived soils that we work with up in Mendocino and Sonoma and Napa. Um, it's we see that also out at at Kirschman Vineyard as well, which is why I think it's that's such a an amazing site for Zinfandel as well. Because Hardy, when I worked harvest with Hardy, we had got some Evangelo yeah. fruit that you helped bring that together, and seeing that go through, I mean, there was a real pristine quality to it at the same time that it was it had some lush fruit, but it was held in check, and it's really interesting, almost kind of like perfectly sculpted way it really is i mean morved i i mean i love as a variety i think it's one of the most unique expressions of morved irrespective of location in the world i mean it's uh and i think it should be thought about in that way i mean the other thing that should be said is that contra costa is one of those areas that has typically kind of been the viticultural backwaters of california and so you know frank evangelo farms that vineyard in a fashion that is far more in line with what we expect in our own vineyards in Sonoma and Napa than the way that most of those vineyards out there are farmed because traditionally a lot of that fruit's sold for not very much and gone to the wine group or some big sort of faceless Central Valley um, operation. And Frank, starting as far back as 1978, had Brother Timothy from LaSalle Brothers out. No, 68, Brother Timothy from LaSalle Brothers came out to look at the fruit and started buying that for LaSalle Winery, which later became Hess Selection oh, okay. Winery. Um, Who's the guy at Christian Brothers? That was brother... A lot of brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I... No, Brother Timothy was Christian Brothers and LaSalle. There's another brother that was at um, Bolu, Bocanon, that was earlier. Okay. Um, Timothy was at Christian Brothers. Christian right? Brothers... Be- I believe became LaSalle, which oh, became so I didn't Hess. Know that. So, I didn't know that. Um, and so they started selling, he started selling to Napa wineries a really long time ago. And so, I mean, some of the most profound old Morveds I've had from the state of California, and we should probably call it Mataro because that's what they traditionally call it in Contra Costa County. And it's what the state officially recognizes the, the name as came from people like Ridge, who worked with the vineyard in the late eighties and early nineties. Uh, Doug Danielek, one of the most undersung winemakers, um, who made the wines for Jade Mountain in the early 90s. Um, sometimes those are good. Those wines can be quite, quite interesting. And sometimes they are prone to reduction and a few other things, but some of them can be, you know, eye-opening in terms of that. And they all came from this. In fact, the Doug Danielic wines all came from that very section that Hardy got his fruit from right there oh, on okay, the top okay. of the ridge there. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty amazing site. And then for your sparkling wine project, you're actually doing some... At least single vineyard sourcing, and one of the vineyards you're working with is Brussel. What's that vineyard like? Oh, Brosso is an incredible vineyard. Yeah. So the the under the wire project, which is, um, I I mean, Chris gets 
an enormous amount of the credit for the idea of it because we, you know, back in 2011, we decided we wanted to make wine together and we were, you know, throwing ideas around like big bruising old school petite straw that would take 50 years to, you know, soften up or other stuff. And, you know, but we both love champagne. We both love bubbles. We drink a lot of it. And uh, he's like, maybe we should try to make sparkling wine. And in 2008 and 2009, I had been getting Chardonnay from Brosseau Vineyard. And in 2010, I realized when we were picking it, it we were picking it at like 20.5 bricks, so like 12.5% potential alcohol, and even a little bit lower than that. And the fruit was literally falling on the ground. It was so ripe. I mean, to see physiologically ripe Chardonnay at that low of bricks is pretty incredible. And the pHs were incredibly low. So both things that you look for in sparkling wine. And so in 11, we decided to pick Brosseau for sparkling wine. And it's... Uh, and you think that's because of limestone? I think it's the, I think it's the vine age. I think it may be because it's phylloxera affected. It's um, its own rooted. It's And it's, yeah, the vineyard is just, it's like a moonscape up there. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's It was planted in 1981 own rooted shotberry wente clone on a combination of limestone and decomposed granite. So it's almost like, you know, crew Beaujolais hits the coat door in some ways and tr- from a soil perspective and it crops at nothing. It's like a ton per acre up there. And it's up at, you know, 1600 feet in Shalom, which is a really hot, dry area. So I also think the fact that there's not a lot of water up there probably hastens the physiological ripening of the fruit as well. Yeah. Cause um, uh, Graf used to have to truck it up. Oh my God, the stories of him and John Brosseau were like literally taking turns every weekend, like driving water trucks up that road, which is, that's, it's hairy in a car. I mean, and yeah, it's um, like it's, a single lane road, a long portion of it. Yeah. So if somebody like, else is coming around the corner. You're, fast. It's really, yeah. really scary. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what's crazy is you think about somebody even before them, there's old Shannon Blanc at uh, Shalom that was planted in 1919. Yeah. That's um, which is just like, thing. some of these old vineyards you go to and you're like, who? A hundred years ago, thought that it was a good idea to plant Chenin Blanc here, you know, well, in many wasn't ways. Wasn't Chenin originally like the white Zin of California? I think so. Chenin was everywhere. I mean, so as a white crepe, I'm sure that's the reason why they chose to plant it. It's just amazing that they were, they didn't think, oh, that huge fertile valley below it. Right, right, like right, Monterey right. or they're like, no, let's go up to 1800 feet on this, you know, this godforsaken area. Literally, uh, Brosseau is two miles from the ranch that Steinbeck's The Red Pony was based off oh, of. I didn't know um, So like that Santa Lucia versus Gabalin range, it's like, you know, it's Steinbeck country. It was one of my favorite authors. So it's always additionally poetic to go up there i'll never um, forget in the beginning of that story where the kid flicks the piece of blood off his eggs in the morning like yes. for his breakfast that's a very visual image that's never left i haven't read that book and or you yeah know, there's always story. he captures that and then the beginning of east of eden he talks about how the santa lucia's against the sea were so dark and foreboding and then the gabalins to the west were full of brightness and light and so and whenever I start winding up that road to Brosseau, and usually it's sort of late in the evening and you're catching this last beautiful, starting to be autumnal light on it, it's just, it's staggeringly beautiful. And you can sort of see the the inspiration behind it. So Brosseau was the, the first vineyard. And what was really amazing is that the sparkling wine that we got out of it in 2011, we, we vinified the Venclair in neutral oak, a twice used acacia barrel and some stainless steel. And just loved it. And we put it in for secondary fermentation. And of course, sparkling wine's scary because one, it's harder to make. You've got the secondary fermentation you've got to get going, which means you 
you technically actually have to be more conscious conscious than I normally would be in terms of where your total sulfurs are, where your total alcohols are, where your VAs post fermentations are. Things that I typically don't, you know, worry about as much. You really have to keep an eye on. And despite all of that, the sparkling wine that came out of it just tastes like Brosseau. It tastes like it's like you know, lime, tarragon, grapefruit, like all these like talc. It's like this really pretty incredible expression of that site. And, you know, we were excited enough about it that we're like, well, we should try this with other sites. So, and that's why we've added some, some subsequent vineyards as well. Yeah. Like Mendocino, right? You're getting some. Yeah. So Alder Springs Vineyard. So I thought I made life difficult on myself for bedrock with the driving when it comes to Amador and Lodi and Contra Costa County. But for the sparkling wine, we drive four hours south to Brosso, and then we drive three and a half hours north to Laytonville, which is right on the near the border of the Humboldt County line. So very far north California, where Alder Springs is located. And Stu Buley, incredible personality, one of the, the greats that we work with. Has like this, invented wine coolers, that guy. He invented right? California cooler when he was young and sold it for a fortune at like 32, 33. And he's always inventing. It's almost like he's planted in such an extreme place that he has had to reinvent viticulture for himself up there because all the rules that normally apply in Napa or Sonoma don't apply when you're one ridge in from the ocean at 2,600 feet on decomposing, you know, sandstone soils, which is what Alder Springs is. And he's got these incredible tinctures that to fight frost, which is basically Bordeaux mixture mixed with something else. And he's created these incredible, this drainage system that he invented. So the vineyard would be more fish friendly. Um, and it's, you know, it's really pretty amazing things up there. He's a really dynamic personality and his farming is impeccable. And it's good because it's so far away. We'd never really get to check on the vineyard as much <laughs> yeah. as we should. I'll trust you, bro. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, there. I definitely, if there's a few of our, uh, more cantankerous old Italian farmers up there. It would not be a match made in, in heaven. And then, yeah, and then we've moved out. We added Hirsch, which is lovely, Pinot Noir, and uh, then Wenzel Vineyard this year from Anderson Valley. And then we also make, because we have to, uh, we make Sparkling Zinfandel from Bedrock as well. But, oh, okay, that's cool. Which is really fun because everybody, and this sort of goes back to my whole like trying to re- shape in some ways, the way Zinfandel is thought about, but people don't realize that Zinfandel is a really high acid variety, uh, particularly when it's young. So our own fruit at Bedrock, I mean, we pick it at sparkling levels at 19 bricks and it's three pH and it's got a TA of 10, which is very similar to Chardonnay or Pinot Noir at that point, but it doesn't make a sort of a different, a different expression for sure. We always tortured my dad to, to say that we were going to make Bretty Lambrusco out of it because that I think is I think you would have nightmares about that. Um, but we didn't make Bretty Lambrusco out of it. We've made some really like interesting rosés and they're a little bit more opulent. They're a little bit more forward than you might have from the the more linear mineral Chardonnay expressions or sort of the exotic Pinot-y character of the Alder Springs rosé from Pinot Noir that we make. But it's really interesting. I think it's good too. So it's a, it's a fun one to make. And it's, you know, it comes from fruit planted and vines planted in 1888. So can't say that about Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's in a way almost stood in the way of Zinfandel is that people have tried to tame the acidity like Barbera. And what they did to do that meant like, oh, bigger fruit, more wood. And, Pick you know, later. Make it a caricature. And Yeah, you know. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the reason this it, this circles back a little bit to the my love of field blends and the heritage wines. But when I started Bedrock, I mean, I didn't want to make Zinfandel, um, in part because I feel like I felt like at that point, 
Zinfandel was so maligned from a stylistic perspective. And even if you made it, even if I made it the way that I wanted to, which would be in a far more sort of classic linear, lower alcohol fashion, I thought one, I was going to get absolutely skewered by critics, which you, I honestly was worried about when I was starting the winery in 07, because I wanted to, you know, make this make, a, make a, a life successful. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to make this a business that, you know, would support me. Be able to pay for things. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, buy fruit the next year. That would be a good thing. Um, and so that's the thing about field blends that I loved is that it allowed me to focus the conversation on the vineyard and then take Zinfandel off of the label. So even though that the wines were based around Zinfandel, it allowed me to start a conversation about the other varieties that are out there and also how so many of the great Zinfandels in California, be them, be it Ridge Geyserville or Ravenswood Old Hill Ranch or Buckland Old Hill Ranch, how many of those wines were, have always been big field blends. They've just said Zinfandel on the label because they were afraid to call it anything else. So trying to redirect the conversation away from Zinfandel because I had the same gut check response that as when I was buying wine in New York, I mean, I didn't want to taste Zinfandel. And it, invariably when I did, I was let down because it just had become a thing where it was oaky and alcoholic and sweet. And like, there just wasn't a lot of respect being put into the grape. And I think everybody was still trying to copy the early Turley wines. And the difference between what they were doing and the early Turley wines is that Turley had incredible vineyards that could somehow support the massiveness that those wines had. And uh, it's been nice to see that there's been, it feels like a big acceptance of one field blends and people understanding the historicity of it and more about old vines as well. I think it's always been interesting to me in California, where there's been such a focus on the newer, the better, the more tightly spaced, the fewer yields per vine, the more control that we can exercise in the vineyard, which is still very much the focus in Napa, that people haven't put a focus on old vines. And you look around the world in every other place, be it, you know, Burgundy or Champagne or Greece or Italy or Australia, and there's always been this focus that, yes, old vines provide you with something that young vines, no matter how much control that you have, there's something that they can give you. And there's something that's ineluctably there that only age can provide and that human input can't provide. And that's what sort of makes working with these old field blends so so cool. Um, and I think that people are starting to, I think, get behind that a little bit more. But I think it's also easier because I think you can see the revamping in style at Turley. I think Tegan has is making the best wines there that have ever been made. You can see the re Ridge has always been there, but I think their wines have cleaned up a little bit. I think, you, and then you have people like Chris Brockway and Michael Dash and people that are really kind of making these more perfumed, bright examples of the wine that people I think are able to both love old vines and then also love the wines that come from them, which is a really nice thing to see. So it's been pretty amazing to be able to look at this movement in the last seven, six or seven years. And I'm certainly not the only one that was part of it, but it's where you see a little bit more of a trend back towards, you know, from old vines, but of wines that are more with made with more focus on site expression rather than the winemaking expression. But sometimes we associate that with lower alcohol. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying yours are high alcohol, but they're no. also not low, I think. You know, your reds. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that that's, yeah, we certainly we certainly tip, you know, 
14 and a half, sometimes 15% on the wines um, in some cases, and particularly in some years. And I think that that is very much the function of what Zinfandel is. I mean, Zinfandel, as it grows, and then because it is the centerpiece of many of these field blends outside of just two of them, really, it's the the main grape. It's, you know, it has a very un- lax uniformity in the way that it it ripens. It has raisins. It has green berries. You tend to see a soak in fermenter. Um, and all of those things mean that even if you're picking it at 23, even if you're picking it at 13, 13.5% alcohol, you're usually going to see a soak in tank to get it and to 14 of 14 and a half. the alcohol jumps up in fermenting tank. So basically, yeah. So you cr- unlike Cabernet, let's say, where you have very uniform clusters and you sample out in the field and you're like, all right, it's 23.8 and it invariably will hit the tank at 23.8 or 23.9. You know, you'll be really close. Zinfandel has a lot more uniformity. So even if you sample it and cluster sampling- A lot less uniformity. A lot less uniformity. And so even when you're sampling, you still, I think, if you can get within about 20% of what the final sugar is, um, I think you're doing well. And, And then you bring it into the winery and then as- it sits in tank and as it ferments, you know, as you get the heat of fermentation up, those raisins start to release a little bit of sugar. And so all of a sudden the wine that if it were Cabernet would have been 13 and a half percent alcohol is 14 and a half percent alcohol because there's sugar that's actually literally in those raisins that's coming out that you don't see. So I think that no matter what, you're going to have higher alcohol when it comes to Zinfandel. I, I think it's just the nature of the variety. To me though, there's a huge difference between how we make our wines, how Turley makes their wines, I think how Carlisle's making their wines more and more these days, how how Ridge has always made their wines, how my father used to make the wines. When you're picking at that moment that the flavor turns, there's just a point at the vineyard where it goes from just being sweet to like just having something where there's a little bit more depth. And then the in cases where there's a lot of mixed blacks, you know, they seem there, you pick immediately and you bring it in you still capture the freshness and the brightness and the natural acidity and the other parts that, and, and, and I think much more of the vineyard character and expression. Unfortunately, the vast majority of Zinfandels and other wines in California today are picked at really, really high sugars. And there's, and to me, the, the later you pick, the more you occlude terroir. There's just no way that picking raisins somehow gives you a better expression of what the soil is because a raisin is a vine is a grape that literally has just been withering on a dead, you know, peduncle, the, the thing that connects it to the cluster. I mean, there's no, it hasn't been getting any uh, original, you know, any more character taken to it. And then the problem is, is that the later you pick, the more raisins you have, the higher your soak level. So you pick in at 29, you soak to 32, and then all of a sudden you've got a 30% water add to get it back to a fermentable alcohol. And then you've also so adding water, adding all of the water back. So 30% water out of a hose, which is great from the bottom line perspective, I guess you 30% pure profit out of a water hose. Um, and it's then really you're adding not that uncommon in California, not that uncommon in California. And then adding a lot of acid and adding all these things. And it's just, to me, if you're making, to me, if you're making a wine that's not supposed to be of sight, that is sort of a commodity wine, I can understand that, I guess. It's still not my favorite type of wine. But um, to me, if you're trying to make wines of sight and of distinction, you need to be able to capture that that sight. And I think it's also, I mean, it literally is a pretty simple process, too, because wine, 
Clark Smith, and he's a crazy man and is a gadfly, and I appreciate him, even though he invented reverse osmosis and all this crazy stuff. He did come out with this really interesting statement um, where he says that for every brick over 25 bricks that you pick, you're prematurely oxidizing like 5 to 6% of the natural polyphenols and anthocyanins, the tannins, the things that allow a wine to age. So in effect, by picking so late, you're actually prematurely oxidizing the wine. So you're almost like aging the wine on the vine in some ways, which is the reason why some of those wines taste so immediately accessible. And I think why people think most Zinfandel should be cracked the moment it hits the doorstep is because it's literally just been prematurely oxidized. And when you're picking at 23, 24, you're keeping freshness, you're keeping vibrancy, and you're picking fruit that's alive. Um, well, I think a lot of the turn away from critics is that a lot of those wines didn't hold up. But totally. They, you know, they fell flat on their face. I mean, like, and we see it too. Look at 97 versus 98 Cabernet now. I mean, do that. Do a retrospective of that now. And 98 was derided because they couldn't get it ripe and they had to pick early because of rains coming in. And uh, I mean, by and large, outside of, I think, Kathy Corson's 97, which is 12.3% alcohol, everything else is just kind of fallen over. And it's, you know, and people paid a lot of money for those wines. And 94s as well. You know, there's a lot of high-end 94 cabs from Napa that are... Not yeah, showing just, so wonderful, right? Yeah, now. that are starting to go into stewed tomato character and not really showing much of where they came from. And I, I think it's one of those things where people also look at 11 that way as well. You know, that vintage was 2011 was easily the most important vintage that I've ever worked because it forced all of us, um, and even those of us that, you know, picked on the earlier side to pick even earlier, you know, picked, it, it forced us to be picking stuff in the 22s and the low 23s. So things that we didn't feel all that comfortable with. And there was a lot of wine that had to be declassified, but some of the best sites produced wines that I think were the best wines that we've ever made, at least personally at Bedrock. And there was so much freshness and so much energy and the wines were impossible to wrap our heads around at a fermenter because there's so much malic acid in them because of grapes were just a little bit less ripe. They tasted astringent and hard. And then after malolactic, you just saw this transition in the wines where they became, you know, a little bit more voluptuous, but they were so perfumed and high tone and like knit together in a really focused way that it, you know, it, it reminded you that, you know, you could pull it back even a little farther. And I think since then, you know, we've been picking even earlier after 2011 because we saw what that did for those wines and we saw the energy. That combined with finding an old photo of uh, an old Redwood that my dad had Old Hill Ranch in back in like 88. And he would always chalk the sugars on the side of the tank. And I saw that it hit the tank at like 22.9. And that wine has aged gorgeously. And I was like, oh, well, that explains a lot of it as well. So, you know, that's continued to help push, you know, us back in terms of where we're, we're picking. So you start in 2007 with Bedrock. Yeah. You fairly quickly develop a number of grape sources, maybe because of your dad's reputation, maybe because it was in 2008, there was a financial crisis yeah. and people had grapes to sell. Yep, that was definitely part of it. You start the Under the Wire project, you bring Chris in. You start to pick a little earlier and maybe try to go for more acidity. What's going to happen next? And are we, how many sparkling wines are we going to see? <laughs> like how many, how many, you know. I hope not as many wines as Bedrock makes because we make 26 wines at Bedrock. Um, and we do, we'll have six this year for for Under the Wire. 
Because um, that seems like a, a kind of a new thing. Like, hey, single vineyard, sparkling wine, California. It's scary. Somewhat high end. You know, because a lot of times people yeah. are like, oh, California sparkling wine. There's a couple that are good. And then, you know. Well, and I mean, for us, I mean, I think with the under the wire thing in particular, it's with that project. I mean, we are more cautious with that than I was developing Bedrock. And Bedrock, that development came from a number of things, but we can talk about that in a bit. But the under the wire, it's like, yeah, how do we get to a point where we're going to tell people that they want to buy, you know, a $75 bottle of sparkling rosé from Hirsch Vineyard and not buy Vilmart, you know, not buy Varnier Fernier or Pierre Peters, you know, Chetillon or something like that. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's a, that's a scary proposition. And so we're really hoping that people will buy into the fact that, people that that we can make wines of place and focus and um but you know there it's not lacking precedent i mean people said the same thing about napa cabernet that they would never get the same prices as bordeaux and people have said the same thing about pinot noir and so i think it's you know it's i think it's going to take a little bit longer than bedrock i think it's going to take some beating down doors and you know trying a lot of talking and a lot of convincing and a lot of cajoling and a lot of whimpering and everything else but it's but i think that there's something unique and in many ways it's the one thing that california hasn't really ever done you know it's it's something that we can do that's more the thing for me not the prices yeah because i think there's a strong track record of americans paying more for american wines from the same grapes as wines from france or europe in general at least at the mid tier like they will happily pay more for Pinot Noir from California than Bourgogne Rouge or Absolutely. you know, Sassam Rocher Rouge, that kind of thing. Yeah. Maybe not more than DRC, but we saw the same thing happen with Cabernet. I mean, they're ha- they were happy to pay more for it. Chardonnay, they were happy to pay more for it. And we're seeing it now even with like grapes like Trucheau, yeah. Shannon maybe. Yeah, hopefully. But, <laughs> you know, but sparkling wine quality-wise, I mean, a lot of people have bit the dust on that. You yes. know, like Chris Dome. You yep. know what I mean? Like th- those kind of things. Like things have been purchased and now it's Pacific Echo. And you know what I mean? Right. Like it Absol- hasn't always worked out. Like- no, it hasn't. And unfortunately, I think you see, I mean, there's only a couple really high end examples of domestic sparkling wine that sell really well. I mean, I think Jay Schramm and Tony Soder stuff out of Oregon and, you know, but other than that, that's Rotor Estate, and that's kind of the ballgame. And yeah. Rotor Estate is even, you know, $55 a bottle on the shelf. It's not like what you would consider. Well, the Hermitage is more. Is it know. a little bit more? Oh, well, I, I think it's closer to, you know, seven. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the yeah, higher and, and And I think that that bottling is a really quite good bottling. I think the thing, though, is, is that everybody's always focused on sparkling wine in many ways of trying to, for the most part, trying to emulate French large house style, right? So... The, what Chris and I are trying to do is we're looking at these grower champagnes and these growers that are doing an incredible job of looking at, let's say, I mean, look at what Salos does. And, you know, before, you know, a V's, you know, somehow that vineyard is all a, a considered a hundredth percentile vineyard. It's all Grand Cru, whether it's down at the bottom, heavy soils or up at the top where there's, you know, almost no soil and, you know, everything somehow is Grand Cru. And, he's now gone through with the Louis D expressions and been like, no, 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 this is, you know, old vines in this particular spot and this particular point. So they're basically taking a more of a Burgundian approach to breaking down 
vineyards. And then you have Ulysses Collin, who's making wines in Congis. I mean, basically, you know, again, it's like the Contra Costa County of Champagne. It's vid- it's backwaters. And he's making these wines of incredible expressiveness and Cedric Bouchard and the bar and Olivia Oreo and all. And so we're looking at those because to me, those are more great wines that happen to have bubbles in them that are distinct. And I think that's hopefully the difference of what sets apart the under the wire wines from a lot of the previous attempts. But frankly, I mean, it's going to be one of those things where I think the novelty will hopefully get people to try them once, but it's going to be inevitably the wine quality and whether it's distinct and interesting and fascinating that gets people to rebuy it. You know, that's the, hopefully it's enough of a, a hook that we can get people to try it, but then it's going to be, you know, whether we've got the chops to, you know, make really interesting sparkling wines. And I'm really happy with what we've done so far. Morgan Twain Peterson of Bedwalk Wine Company and also Under the Wire. He'd like you to try the wines more than once. Thank you very much for being here today. Yes, please. My pleasure. Morgan Twain Peterson. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.